Hi, everyone. Welcome back to For the Girls. We are not used to a four-week break at this time of the season, so it was definitely a bit of a struggle, but we're so excited to be back and in Baku, no less. It's one of our favorite races, and we are in for a ride with this new sprint format, which we will talk all about. We're back in the thick of it with a double header these next two weeks and then a triple header after that. So there's five races in the next six weeks, which is insane. We can't wait. So we will (laughs) jump right into it. I'm Sarah. I'm Chessa. And I'm Tiggy. All right. The Azerbaijan Grand Prix preview. We are back after a month-long break, which is going to be super interesting when it comes to the development race, because unlike the summer break, there is no mandatory factory shutdown, which means teams have been grinding this whole time. Most teams are bringing upgrades. It's definitely an interesting strategy choice and trade-off, just given there's only one hour of practice the entire weekend, so there's not a lot of time to be like looking at data and tweaking things. It's also our first sprint ah, weekend. It's going to be so good. Of the year and a hotly debated one. We talked in our last episode about certain drivers and principals not being too happy about a sprint race on this tight street circuit, but the show goes on. So a quick reminder of the different sprint format that's being tested out this weekend. So we have one practice session on Friday and then a normal quali, which will set the grid for Sunday's race. The sprint then has its own standalone events on Saturday. So there's a short quali in the morning that replaces FP2 and then the sprint on Saturday afternoon, which is 17 laps. And the sprint finishing order has no bearing at all on Sunday's race, which runs as normal. But my favorite thing is this sprint shootout. <laughs> Someone walk us through this madness. <laughs> so the sprint shootout is what the quali format, what they're calling quali on Saturday. And this is going to be the structure. So Q1 is going to last 12 minutes. The cars are on brand new medium tires. The bottom five will be eliminated as usual. Q2 is 10 minutes. The cars are again now all on the new medium tires again. And the bottom five are eliminated as usual. Q3 is only eight minutes with the cars on new soft tires, which will be awesome. This sets the top 10 order for the sprint later in the day, but does have no bearing on the Sunday starting order. So the idea for these shorter quality sessions is that it pressures the drivers to get faster times in on the first tries. Q1 will really only give teams time for two runs with a pit stop in between. And then Q2 and Q3 can get two timed laps in, but the drivers won't be able to stop for new tires. So I think it'll be super exciting. I think... I personally hope that drivers will kind of like pedal to the metal. And as far as grid penalties and how they apply for this, so the grid penalties in FP1 and Friday quality will apply to the race on Sunday. Grid penalties incurred in the sprint shootout will apply to only to the sprint. Um, and those incurred in the sprint will apply to the race. So it's kind of like bumping it up to the next event of the weekend. So we'll be very interesting. I'm very excited for that. So what do we think on the format? I think for me, It's a little bit confusing, and I think it definitely will evolve over time because at this point it does kind of feel like a very separate just opportunity for points. But I think this could be a situation where the FIA gets all excited about something new, forgets to think about the permutations of what's going to happen, forgets (laughs) to write down the rules, and then people get very confused. So I think there'll be a lot of like editing and evolving of this as the season goes on and then for next season too. Yeah, I think it's super interesting and people are very polarized over what they think on this. Brake actually had a really good video talking about the pros. He seems pretty into it, like getting rid of FP2, which I think everybody agrees is sort of meaningless, especially on sprint weekends, Uh, less practice data for teams. So that potentially means like a more unpredictable race. 
two qualies. Everybody loves a good quali. So like all of that I think is true. But on the other side, and I think my thoughts maybe align with this more, um, someone said something similar to what I think in our Discord. Shout out to Burrito, iconic name. Um, the fact that the sprint doesn't impact the Sunday race order just means it's kind of like a points grabbing opportunity, which could potentially widen the field even more from like the top teams to the back half, because especially if only eight, if there's only eight point scoring positions, plus the potential to wreck easily blow through budget, like, I don't know, I feel like we could see the gap in the field widening even more, which is, is not what we're looking for, but here for the spectacle regardless. So I think it'll be really interesting to see it play out. Budget implications will be super interesting. I think that'll change. Yeah, there is a bit of a budget increase to kind of take into account potential sprint damage, but still it's a, you can mess up the opportunity for Sunday because it's not just a budget problem. It's whether or not they can actually physically fix the cars in time. So that is interesting. I think that's such a good point, Tiggy, because – I think originally part of the logic behind doing this was that people thought the old sprint format where that sets the grid for Sunday's race, in the event there was a kind of fun, unusual quality like KMAC pole, something crazy like that, then a sprint kind of shuffles everyone back into the standard order and then the race starts in kind of the typical order versus now we're going to have quality set the grid for Sunday. So if something wild happens, Friday, it won't kind of get reshuffled in the sprint. But I think what I'm mostly concerned about is just the toll on the teams and the drivers, like having five races in six weeks when this is practically going to feel like a double race weekend is just so much. So essentially doing two races in one weekend, flying to Miami, Miami is going to be such a high energy event. I think that's yes, just Yes, it so will hard. be, Sarah. Sarah's going to yes, be there. I'm so excited. <laughs> I will be bringing a lot of energy. <laughs> So a quick reminder of where we left off points-wise before the break. Max has a 15-point lead over Checo with Alonso and Lewis in third and fourth. Red Bull has a 58-point lead over Aston Martin, who's then ahead of Mercedes and Ferrari in third and fourth. For the circuit. So like we said, Baku is a street circuit, and it's typically one of the more exciting races on the calendar. There's usually a lot of drama, fun moments, We have 51 laps, six kilometers, two DRS zones, 20 turns, and Charles, our newly uh, minted recording artist, holds (laughs) the lap record from 2019. And fun fact, he also holds the F2 lap record at this track. So Charles likes this place. Um, It is the first time a sprint race is being held on a street circuit, which is somewhat controversial given how error prone these drivers can be on a tight, windy circuit which seems like expensive repair jobs could be in store. And as we talked about before, Christian, a lot of team principals have spoken out on this. Christian saying it's absolutely ludicrous to be doing a sprint race here. But he said that from a fan point of view, it's probably going to be one of the most exciting sprint races of the year. Otmar said that teams have likely been using this break to build up spare parts. James Vowles wow. is expecting mayhem. He said a sprint race weekend at that tight, twisty track where you go through the castle section is going to cause a little bit of mayhem. So look out for that section in particular. <laughs> we love a little bit of mayhem. <laughs> we do. Um, with, yeah, qualifying that one, though, we'll see. It's a fast track with long straights. So that's literally three cars can run side by side on the main straight into turn one. And it's definitely a a really fun track. There's a mix of wide, open, long straights and then these narrow sections that we just talked about. Um, So teams definitely have to optimize one or the other for the car setups, and it's hard for them um, 
to figure out exactly what that strategy is going to be. For turns one and turn two, they're 90 degrees turn. They're 90 degree turns. So lots of overtaking opportunities, even if there's not a DRS zone there. And then of course, braking is going to be very tricky here. Drivers have to really have to commit until the last minute on some of these turns. So that'll be interesting to see. And then of course, um, the braking will definitely play into tire strategy as well. It's a low deg circuit generally. Um, so it has been a one-stop race in the, in the past. For some track history and background, I love this circuit. I'm so excited. It's definitely one of my favorites. <laughs> Baku first held a Grand Prix in 2016. So it's one of the newest street circuits on the calendar. And like the new generation of street circuits like Jeddah, it's super fast. And unlike a track like Monaco, it's much more suited to modern cars, which are much larger and wider, which makes for some really fun racing. So you kind of get the best of both worlds where it's suited to the modern cars, but you still have them kind of twisting through this medieval castle section and driving along all the high-rise residential buildings by the water. The cars drive by 12th century city walls, which are, fun fact, protected by UNESCO and listed as a World Heritage Site. When Herman Tilke designed the circuit, he was instructed to include as many historical landmarks as possible. And you can definitely see that as you watch, which I think it's definitely just one of, in addition to being great racing, one of the most most visually spectacular circuits. Okay, so getting into last year's race, despite Baku being a super fun circuit that promises a lot of drama, as we said, last year's race was actually on the more uneventful end of the spectrum. So we are definitely manifesting something more exciting this year. The main story here last year was just how bad the porpoising was. I think, Sarah, this is – I remember you created that, like, um, like pogo stick panda meme or whatever, and that was definitely <laughs> – uh, Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that. It was the pogo yeah. sticks next to the castle. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, yeah, over – it was it was wild. Over the course of that weekend – the bottoming, like especially for Mercedes, it was also a nightmare of a weekend for Ferrari. So for Quali, P1 was Charles, then Checo, then Max, then Sainz, and the two Mercedes. Charles had a bad start. Checo passed him, and the Red Bulls were looking very quick. Lap 9, Sainz had to retire due to a hydraulics failure, and Charles on lap 20 had an engine failure. The announcers, do you remember that? It was like, bitter disappointment. Leclerc's season is unraveling. Puff, puff, and he's gone. How could you forget that? (laughs) Tragic, tragic. Max then, in classic fashion, pretty easily passed Checo, and the rest of the race was not that exciting, which was sad because this can be a really fun one. And 2021 was where we got that famous photo of Max kicking his tire. Both Max and Lance had high-speed tire blowouts, and that podium was Checo, then Vettel, then Gasly, which is iconic. Um, but yeah, that's the race where Mercedes had such bad porpoising that Lewis could barely get out of the car after the race and said it was the most painful race. Yeah. Yeah, um, the podium there, it was Max, then Checo, then George, and then Lewis, Gasly, Vettel, and Alonso. We do have to give a shout out how till uh, last year, Alonso held some cars up in quali. And then in the recap, we discussed whether veterans like Alonso should retire to help their team develop the next generation of talent. And I think I on the side, <laughs> like get out of the sport. <laughs> and he's yeah, now opened the season with three podiums. Uh, so I, you know, hindsight 2020, I take it all back. Alonso, thank you for being here. <laughs> I don't take it back. I like when we, when we have hot takes like that. That's great. <laughs> all right, let's jump into the teams and what we can expect from them this weekend. So Red Bull, to put some numbers on their dominance so far this season, we've had three races and Red Bull have had three poles, three wins and two one twos. So 
these have not been closed <laughs> too. Like Bahrain was like a 38 second gap and Saudi was a 20 second gap. So yeah, way to go Red Bull. Yikes. Um, <laughs> I think the name of the game for the break for the other teams was probably just like trying to catch up in the development race, bringing upgrades, et cetera. Um, but they'll have to pull off some sort of miracle to even get close to Red Bull in our opinion. And so after starting in P20 in Australia, Mr. Street Circuit, a.k.a. Checo, he's ready to bounce back on his preferred terrain, which is the streets. As a reminder, four of his five wins have been at street circuits. And he holds the records for most podiums at this track with four podiums. So exciting race for Checo, I think. Um, Christian did make some comments about how he doesn't see Max, quote, pulling in Alonso and racing at 40-plus years old. Very random, but maybe Max's heyday is soon to be declining. Who knows? Okay, I don't know about that. <laughs> but um, I do it was think kind I of a rogue statement. I, I can't imagine, though, he started when he was so young. He joined F1 when he was, what, 17 or 18? So yeah. I could see him getting into his 30s and just kind of being like, okay, peace out. I've done it's like John, what I came here to do. Like dog years, he's super old right now. <laughs> <laughs> For Ferrari, Ferrari had a double DNF last year due to reliability issues. Let's hope for better things this year. They're bringing a new aero package to Baku. They're also hoping to improve the balance and stability of the car. And there have been rumors that Ferrari was developing a B-spec car that kind of goes in a different direction than the current one. But Fred Vasseur basically shut that down. He said they're focused on bringing a lot of updates that improve the current car concept. He says they're going to have updates at Miami, Imola, and Barcelona. So, wow. And also bringing upgrades to Miami kind of shows how serious they are about it. Because as we've discussed a lot, it's way easier logistically to bring upgrades to the European races. As for Carlos, the FIA dismissed Ferrari's appeal of his penalty in Australia, sadly. And... I thought it was a strong appeal. I think in hindsight, part of Ferrari's reasoning was kind of the inconsistency because in that, what was it, second or third red flag restart, lost track in the chaos, but the two Alpines totally took each other out. And then there was a collision between Logan Sargent and Nick DeVries where Logan Sargent kind of totally took Nick DeVries out, but didn't get a penalty, didn't even get investigated. And the Alpine drivers were also allowed to speak to the stewards. So I'm kind of surprised they didn't at least hear him out on this appeal, but I think it's pretty hard to convince them after the race is already over. In some fun Ferrari news, Charles Lisa's first ever single on Spotify. Um, have you all <laughs> listened yet by the time this is out? It's called AUS 23 1 And it's a very kind of moody sad piano song and also we were up early to record this episode so tiki and i may have been the first listeners <laughs> <laughs> yeah his page right now says uh, zero monthly listeners on spotify he has no artist picture it's hilarious <laughs> um yeah, how did you find this because it's separate from kind of his other spotify page where he has like his playlist uh, well, it's his artist profile. And on Spotify, if you're an artist, you have a separate profile than like your listener profile. Oh, wow. So he didn't have any songs out as an artist. So boom, here he is. I hope he I hope he puts a picture up there and like <laughs> whatever. But I did check the credits on Spotify and he is listed as the composer, which is incredible. Good for him. <laughs> wow. Yes. He, he, as, as someone who knows about music, what do you think about the actual song? <laughs> 
Um, I think it's great. Like if he actually recorded this piano on his own fab, he definitely recorded the strings in software. Like you can definitely hear that. Yeah. That it's not like real strings, but that's still super cool. I'm I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. Well done, Charles. <laughs> um Okay, for Mercedes, they have been hard at work, according to Toto this break. They said their goal is to be able to quickly bring successive upgrades over the next few races. For Baku, the main goal is just better downforce, different suspension components to help the balance of the car. George made a comment saying that we're probably finding more gains in the past two or three weeks than we found over the whole winter by clearly developing in the wrong window. So it's definitely heading in the right direction, which that's a strong statement. And also, like, admitting we just totally went the wrong direction over the winter. Finally. Yeah, on a similar note, so it was announced last week that Mercedes has done a bit of a technical reshuffle. So former technical director Mike Elliott is stepping into the CTO role, chief technology officer role, and James Allison, the former CTO, is becoming technical director. So they essentially just swap positions. My thoughts on this. Interesting. It's funny because it looks like a promotion for Elliot because the technical director reports into the CTO, but the CTO is a much less hands-on role than technical director, and they have like less of a hand in the day-to-day of the car. So Elliot, he was a huge asset for aerodynamics and the turbo hybrid era, like definitely has his lane and definitely is a genius in many ways, but it seems like the broader role of technical director didn't make a lot of sense for him. And I think it just could be a sign that Mercedes has started to sort out the internal factors that have contributed to poor performance over these last like year or two um, and is starting to hold people accountable. And it seems like Elliot, while diplomatically, he has taken the fall on the sword um, in a sense. And Toto did say that the move was very much driven by Mike himself acknowledging that his skills weren't best suited to the role. And yeah, wow, so super interesting. interesting. I think given the timing of it all, it does seem like a lot of James Allison's focus will be on 2024. Not that he won't have a hand in trying to improve this year, but that's obviously already underway. So I feel like this is really to set them up well for, for 2024 and beyond. But yeah, super interesting. In other Mercedes news, Lewis was at Coachella over the break. Iconic. Uh, there was a picture of him and Justin Bieber. Very incredible. He was also all over Dumois with a potential new model girlfriend or love interest. Um, And he also celebrated his 10-year anniversary at Mercedes, which is awesome. He spoke on the Mercedes YouTube channel and said some really touching things about Botas and Bono specifically. So 10 whole years. It's wild. It was really sweet. He was, yeah, he was really showering, especially Botas with compliments, which I I love to see. How could you not? (laughs) Yes, It would be nice if they're able to be kind of better friends now. I guess I wonder if they hang out in Monaco. Just being, I think it's so hard probably kind of have that relationship with your teammate. But now that Botas is kind of in his chill era, I don't know. I wonder if they hang out. Yeah. Who knows? So jumping into Alpine, what a beautiful turn, brutal race for um, for them in Australia. They both DNF'd after taking each other out in the last race. Otmar confirmed that it was indeed a racing incident the team looked very closely at what happened and it was just like a 50 50 on both of their sides he also said that the damage caused to the cars from that race hasn't compromised any upgrade plan so that's great to hear because they had to race to create more spare parts during this break so that's definitely been a priority for them over upgrades there were some silver linings in australia um, on pace and that they were able to stick with the ferraris 
stay ahead of Stroll and the Aston Martin. So um, potentially really looking out for them in this race. They're bringing an entirely new floor. Um, so we'll be excited to see how the pace looks for them. For McLaren, they are coming with their first of apparently three major upgrades planned for the season, but apparently a B-spec of their car won't be coming out until a bit later in the season. Zach had made comments earlier this season about how they've been a bit slower than they wanted to on the development front, and we definitely know they have a lot left to be desired in terms of pace so far this season. Stella said kind of the main issue with the car has been the ratio between downforce and drag not being as high as they'd like, which is interesting, but it's still early. Stella said that the data is looking promising in regards to the upgrade. We have high hopes for Lando and Oscar, but at the same time, as team principals often do, Andrea Stella kind of tempered expectations a bit. He said it's going to take more than just one really good upgrade package for them to be fighting for where they want, but fingers crossed for them. They're currently fifth in the standings after a double points finish in Australia, which is a good position to build from, and the Austries definitely looking close to Lando on pace, so we are excited to see what they can do from here. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that they're in fifth. Like We've talked so much about McLaren's start to the season, but Australia really like pulled them out from <laughs> under where they were, so that's great. For Alfa Romeo, Botas has just been living it up in Finland this past week. His <laughs> pictures have been incredible. He's also been cycling a lot with Tiffany, which is lovely. They have been doing a lot of promo for Oath Gin, which they created together, which is very, very cool. Joe also seems to have been traveling around a lot in Paris and London, which is great. And he got points in Australia, so hoping he can keep up the momentum. We've talked a lot about Alfa Romeo's performance this season, and especially in the relative rankings episode. So we're definitely hoping for more from them. For Alpha Tauri, there has been some movement and restructuring at Alpha Tauri. It's rumored that Ferrari's racing director, Laurent Makies, will be joining Alpha Tauri. And they also hired a new head of commercial in March. And the reason that we think this is relevant is just because of all the rumors that Alpha Tauri is for sale. Apparently, they've received some bids, including a rumored one for $800 million that was rejected. But the internal movement and hiring seems to signal that Red Bull, Red Bull is definitely still invested in the team and wanting to improve it, which means it's likely off the bidding table for now. So that's kind of interesting. Um, Yuki had made some comments about the car performance after Australia. He called the straight line speed horrible and suggested oh. that they run with, quote, no wing in order to be competitive. In okay, Austria. Yuki, say it how it is. Ooh. Uh, it's brutal. Nick DeVries, meanwhile, still pointsless this season. So definitely hoping for a good showing from him this weekend because he is super talented. Uh, so, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, he's so talented. I was really kind of expecting him to come out of the gate swinging with points, which I think might just be kind of further example of where this car is. I'm also super interested in kind of the Yuki-Nick matchup because Yuki's been outperforming him. So we'll see. For Haas, hopefully they're still hot off of Nico's P7 finish in Australia. This is their best result since last July. And I'm hoping that that experience really pays off for them in Baku. Both K-Mag and Nico we're on the grid for the inaugural Baku race in 2016, which definitely says something. Uh, but they haven't ho- scored points in Baku since 2017. Gunther says that the race team went on a, quote, bonding retreat to Wales, which sounds just lovely. Maybe not what you're going to want to be doing during your break, but that does sound like the team got some good rest and camaraderie in. Um, I don't think they'll be bringing an upgrade until Miami 
And Gunther seems to be one of the odd team principals out in the fact that he is a fan of the new sprint format. He thinks it's really exciting for them, for the fans. I just love his energy. Like, I think he he definitely views the sport as like a full package deal. And he definitely has the fans <laughs> at the front of his head. Um, he said that's all they have going for them at this point, maybe. Um, he did say Saturday practice is, quote, pretty pointless. So this is definitely much better in his mind. And speaking of him, he's been doing a lot of promo over the break for his new book, Surviving to Drive a Year Inside <laughs> Formula One, which just came out. I literally know what he couldn't have come up with a better title like he's just cashing in on this <laughs> yeah I he is the star so... of drive to survive he's milking it i've read some of I the know, reviews he so hard <laughs> into it though because i, I kind of feel like at the start it was just so organic and then now it's a little bit like oh gunther's a star of drive to survive but yeah he's also doing the audiobook <laughs> if you guys uh read it please please give us your review we're so curious i've like read the reviews on amazon and on goodreads which are funny um but yeah dying to hear yeah, about it maybe DM maybe us. we'll pick up a copy <laughs> ourselves <laughs> women's health is so important and balanced hormones are key for that we've been loving hormone harmony from happy mammoth who's committed to making women's lives easier Hormone Harmony contains adaptogens, science-backed herbal extracts that help the body adapt to stressors like hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. We love it because it helps us maintain optimal hormone levels and supports our mood and general well-being. There is a reason that one bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. For a limited time, you can get 15% off on your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use code F1Rthegirls at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code F1Rthegirls for 15% off today. We all need a little extra health booth sometimes, and Fleur Marche makes it easy for us to supercharge our wellness. Their botanical wellness patches have been such a fun addition to our routine. We just stick them on wherever we want. They have them for sleep, relaxation, focus, and other things. And the patch delivers ingredients to your body in a subtle but effective way, and the results last up to 12 hours. Fleur Marche also has botanical gummies and their new organic nutritional powder, Green Machine. They only use the best ingredients and are tested for potency, contaminants, and heavy metals before and after production. And one of our favorite things, we also love that the company is founded and inspired by women with the mission of helping us feel 100% every single day so that we can have full energy and crush it every day. Find your new wellness essentials at fleurmarche.com and get a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your first order site-wide with promo code for the girls at checkout. Orders over $50 also get free shipping. Go to fleurmarche, F-L-E-U-R-M-A-R-C-H-E.com. Use code for the girls for 20% off your first order. Okay, friends, it's festival and concert season, and you know it's all about the boots this year. That's why you need to make Tacova's your number one place for festival style this spring. And don't forget to shop their seasonal and limited edition offerings, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. We love Tacova's. They have a first wear comfort, which basically means there's no break in period. It's the best thing ever. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, and shop new styles. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personal personalized and with regular live music and events there's really no in-store experience like it if you can't make it to a store though just visit tecovas.com t-e-c-o-v-a-s.com they offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and they ship right to your door go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today for aston martin there is a lot to get into here and don't worry we'll talk about (laughs) what everyone is wondering about here 
So first, racing-related, Aston Martin is expected to bring their first real upgrades in Baku, including a new rear wing. Their sporting director, Andy Stevenson, made some interesting comments about how race begins are harder when you're farther up the grid, which is kind of similar to some comments Alonso's made. Andy Stevenson said, a team at the back of the grid will say it's working as hard as the teams at the front, and there's a lot of truth in that, but the mental strain is much greater when you're at the front. And it sort of ties back to our conversation in a previous episode of how Aston Martin is crushing it, but just isn't as experienced in keeping up that momentum, performing at that level week after week, bringing upgrades at the level that a top team is going to. So very curious to see how this works for them. So next, we have to briefly discuss the absolutely (laughs) wild, dare we say, earth-shattering Fernando Alonso and Taylor Swift rumors. So for context... News recently broke that Taylor Swift and her longtime boyfriend and partner of six years, Joe Alwyn, had split up. She's just embarking on her era's world tour. And all of a sudden, rumors started coming out about how Taylor and Alonzo are dating, apparently kind of stemming from some stuff in celebrity magazines. And I think everyone thinks it's totally fake and ridiculous, but it's been just kind of a hilarious crossover of Formula One and Taylor Swift fans that people are absolutely loving. And we've not talked about this on the podcast, I don't think, because why would we? It's normally unrelated to Formula One. But Tiggy and I are huge Taylor Swift fans. So these like niche Taylor Swift lyric jokes, (laughs) we're really here for Yeah. If you saw our track Tuesday yesterday, we could not help ourselves with, uh, the drought was the very worst caption. <laughs> you thought of that one and I opened my phone. I was like, oh my God, yes. That so good. <laughs> Guys, I'm so It's a little bit of a deep one. cut. Yeah, that one went right over my head. Just is like, that's such a weird phrase about a drought on our caption. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. Those who know, know. Um, okay. So I saw a fantastic hat on the plane this weekend that said chaos coordinator. So that is the role I'm going to assume right now. So... Ladies, if we were to chaotically play into this conspiracy theory, what is one song you think Taylor Swift has written about Alonso? Can be from any era. Oh wow. Oh my gosh. Um I think I have to go with red just because the line about red, which I think we posted, what is it? It's like loving, loving him. him is like driving <laughs> a new Maserati down a dead end street. <laughs> yes. That's yes. so good. So, But Alonso's not going down a dead-end street right now. (laughs) (laughs) But he was. Um, For me, you guys are putting me on the spot here. I literally can't think of any of his songs off the top of my head. So right before this, I Googled Taylor Swift songs. And I guess we'll go with Antihero. I'm sorry. (laughs) It is interesting that the Taylor Swift song is called Antihero. And he said in Drive to Survive, he had that little interview. Exactly. Okay. So there there have to be heroes and antiheroes. Yup. That's, I mean, it's very possible she wrote that about him. That's the smoking <laughs> gun, guys. <laughs> I can't like say it with a straight face. I know. All right. Mine is kind of a rogue choice, but I'm going to go with delicate off reputation. I can just imagine them bonding at that time over their, their less than stellar public reputations <laughs> <laughs> and having Alonzo making drinks in a sultry New York City bar and we can just pretend his eyes are blue <laughs> and it's fine. One thing that I think people are so excited about right now as Formula One fans is like 
I feel like especially in the U.S., I mean, fandom is exploding, yes, but I feel like a lot of us still don't have a ton of friends or people who talk about Formula One in our day-to-day lives. So it's just so fun to have something where, like, other people are hearing about it and hearing about Formula One in relation to, like, the world's top superstar. <laughs> it's just Totally. Like- my work friend yesterday messaged me. Shout out Morgan. She was like, my fiancé told me to ask you about Fernando Alonso, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's so and weird. also, so what do you think about the fact that he posted that? So then he posted the TikTok with karma sped up in the background and kind of winking, which I take his conf- I took his confirmation that this is just totally fake. Like I thought it was just oh, saying sure. that he's in on the joke. Agreed. For sure. For sure. But I kind of love that he's playing into it and I kind of want Taylor to acknowledge it in some capacity, but she never will. Definitely not. <laughs> To wrap up Aston Martin, as much as I love talking about Taylor Swift ladies, um, (laughs) (laughs) we can't forget that Stroll was on podium here in Baku during his first season with Williams. And then at last year at Baku, Alonso broke the record for longest F1 career. He beat out Michael Schumacher's record with 21 years, three months and eight days. Um, We'll do Williams really quick here and then we'll go into our hot takes and news and then our special segment. So, Williams, we talked about this in our relative ranking episode about how Williams' points so far this season don't really feel reflective of their performance so far. Val said that, quote, whilst we sit here in 10th in the championship with just one point to our name, it's not a fair reflection of the work that's gone into this car so far this year um, and the performance that the car can certainly have track on track. So I do think that hopefully we'll start to see more things from them. For hot takes and predictions – I am coming in hot this week. I'm going to say a Mercedes win, and I'm going to say a McLaren comeback with both drivers in the top 10 all weekend, including the sprint. The sprint is going to be chaotic. I'm also predicting that. I like that. Yeah, I think Chessa made a comment about this earlier. I think about kind of chaos slash potentially the FIA for getting the rules. My more hot take is I feel like it's going to be general chaos with this format, and I'm not – Sounds good in theory. I'm not entirely sure how smooth the execution is going to be, especially on Saturday and especially in the new qualifying format. So we'll see. I kind of feel like something is going to go wrong. But I also am – I think my hot take is just going to be a wild card on podium on either the sprint or Sunday, which gives me two chances. But I do think just the format, the whole weekend, and the lack of practice is going to give – kind of an opportunity for a shakeup. So I hope that happens. For me, I think it's going to go two different ways. Either one, Max is just going to destroy the sprint. He's been so good. I think at some points this season, he's been holding back. So with a full standalone points grab, I think he'll just pop off. Or on the (laughs) other hand, what I would much prefer is to see this format really favor the midfield. So Tiggy, I think I'm also going to go with a McLaren comeback a little bit. They'll be best of the rest. In terms of news this week, Audi's new F1 program is definitely kicking it into full gear. They have reported that they will finish hiring their 300-person team and be ready to test a complete hybrid powertrain by the end of 2023, which is very impressive. As a reminder, Audi announced last year that they will join F1 in 2026 when the new engine regulations are announced. What do you guys, like, hot take, who's driving for Audi in 2026? (laughs) Ooh. Um, Charles, if he has not won a championship by then. That's good. And also maybe Lando. If McLaren doesn't get it together in time. Yeah. Ooh, okay. 
In other news, the FIA and the teams have agreed to increase the allocation of engine elements in order to cut down on grid penalties, and this is effective immediately. So now each driver can use four instead of three components of the internal combustion engine, the turbo, and the MGUH and K units before the penalties kick in. And as a reminder, the allocation for the energy store and control electronics will stay the same at two per season. And this week, there have been rumors swirling with lots of speculation that Liberty Media is interested in buying the Indy 500 and turning it, basically turning it into an American-based feeder series for F1. What really sparked these rumors was this one F1 analyst, Pete Windsor, was talking about it on his YouTube channel and kind of presenting the business case for why this would be a good idea. But we will we will add that since then, the Indy 500 Corporation, Penske Corporation, has strongly denied any and all rumors associated with this Liberty Media potential takeover. The president, which owns the whole Indy situation, said that they wouldn't sell it because they already own Indy 500, the whole Indy car series, and the Speedway, and they have them together, and that's not going to change. Interesting. In most unfortunate news, late last week, a German magazine published what they claim to be the first video interview with Michael Schumacher since his shocking 2013 ski accident. It turns out that the video was made up. It was an AI deep fake. And I just can't even express how morally wrong on so many levels and just so disrespectful to the family. Mm-hmm. I just like, how would you ever, ever? think that that's okay and also his home nation like it's just I, I it's gross I'm literally speechless in response uh the editor-in-chief has since been fired and the magazine did issue an apologies to the Schumacher family but I just cannot so because of that our special topic today is uh, about Michael Schumacher. We want to do a deep dive into his life and his career. We've been wanting to do a GOAT series for a long time now and, of course, have to start with probably the actual greatest of all time, Michael the Schumacher. The GOAT of all GOATs. Truly. Um, we definitely hear his name a lot, especially when talking about Lewis, sharing the championship record with him, or anything related to Mick, who is, who is his son, as we know, over the past couple of years. But I think a lot of people can benefit from a deeper dive just because he has shaped so much of the sport as we know it and has an amazing story. So we will dive in. We'll start with some stats. So he, as we said, tied with Lewis for most drivers' championships at seven. And at the time of his retirement in 2012, his second retirement, he held the record for most wins at 91, most pulls at 68, most podiums, 155, which literally equates to half his races were on podium, which is just insane. And most race wins in a season, he had 13 out of 18. So those first three have since been broken by Hamilton and the last by Max Verstappen last season. But Schumacher still holds the record for the most fastest laps at 77, among other records. So basically, he was arguably still is the best driver that the sport has ever seen. So and wild. we kind of have to take into account with some of these records that this season has expanded so much. So some mm-hmm. of these podiums and points and race wins in a season records, like last year, there were what twenty two or twenty three races. So I think that's also something to take into account. Totally. In terms of upbringing and early life, Schumacher was born in nineteen sixty nine in a divided Germany. His dad was 
a bricklayer and a go-kart track manager, so Michael was able to get into karting at a young age. His mom ran the canteen at the karting track. Needless to say, they were not wealthy, but he had good exposure to karting. He won his first karting championship at six years old wow. with a kart that his dad built from spare parts. So really just Iconic. A, f- a phenomenon from a young age. His family couldn't afford to sponsor his karting career, but he was able to get local sponsorship from wealthy businessmen that allowed him to keep progressing. To get a karting license in Germany, you have to be 14. So he went to Luxembourg when he was 12 <laughs> to go get one. Again, iconic. And in 84 and 85, he won the German Junior Karting Championships. And in 87, he won the German and European Karting Championships. He then went into F3, won the German F3 Championship in 1990, and then joined Mercedes Junior Racing Program in the World Sports Car Championship. So very much an amazing start to his career. Right from the get-go. And his debut in the F1 is a wild story. So one of the drivers, one of the F1 drivers for for Jordan, Bertrand, and Gachot, he was sentenced to prison in 1991 for aggravated assault. He basically sprayed a taxi driver with tear gas and then hit the tear gas in a toilet. So his trial Insane was the, story. <laughs> yeah, very random. <laughs> we could probably have an entire episode about random sides of stories of things like this that happen adjacent to F1. F1 um, was the Wild West. It was. <laughs> it was truly. So this guy, his trial was the week before Spa, the Belgian Grand Prix, and they thought he was just going to get a fine or something minor, but he ended up being sentenced to 18 months. Anyway, all that to say that it caused – Eddie Jordan, the team boss, to call up Schumacher to fill in for him. He had an amazing performance, qualifying seventh at Spa, no less, which is a crazy rack track, very difficult for a rookie. And a fun fact is that Schumacher's manager at the time told Jordan that Michael knew that the track well, but he'd only been there as a spectator. So I guess he was just like, oh my gosh, he had never raced on no. the track. He was just like he, sitting there she- crunching the numbers as a spectator. <laughs> No, but he was, he like would bring this uh, like fold up bike and he would like bike around the track to get to know it. But he had literally never raced there. But his manager was like, yeah, he knows it super well. He's an expert here. (laughs) Fake it till (laughs) you make it, guys. That is the, (laughs) that is the motto. (laughs) So at this race or at this quality, he out qualified his veteran teammate, tied the best grade position the team had seen at seventh. He had to retire on lap one of the race with clutch problems, but his quality performance was enough to be immediately signed to Benetton, which is one of the teams at the time. Technically, he was committed to Jordan for the rest of the season, who tried to take legal action to enforce the agreement. (laughs) Sounds familiar. But because they hadn't signed a final contract, the British courts denied it, and he was able to go to Benetton. So that started his illustrious F1 career. So we'll just run through it. Benetton from 1991 to 1995. So that first year, he finished the remainder of the 91 season out with them. And then in 1992, he won his first race a year later at Spa, which is great. He ended up third in the championship in his first full season, which is just insane. Like imagine Piastri or Nick or Logan finishing third this year. Wow. Like could you could you imagine? Wow. He took his first driver's championship with Benetton in 1994, so only his third full season with the team. But this year it was a really, really horrible year. It was the death of Senna, another all-time great, which we have talked about before. And Schumacher was actually in the car following Senna when he crashed. So it was really a brutal season. Um, 
But at Benetton during these years, there was some sketchy stuff happening, <laughs> having like them having potentially illegal code in their software. Schumacher was getting, he got a multiple race ban for ignoring a penalty and some other things that were a bit sketchy, but he did manage to secure another championship in 95. But that is when the glory years began with Ferrari. So Sarah, why don't you take us through the Ferrari years? Because they're pretty amazing. So Schumacher left Benetton a year early, not on the greatest terms, to go to Ferrari. And this was kind of an unexpected and risky move at the time. They hadn't won a driver's championship since 1979 or a constructor since 1983. Their cars were literally referred to as pigs or accidents waiting to happen. People made a lot of fun of the Ferrari pit crews back then. So just tough. His two-year salary, though, at the time of signing was $60 million. And you have to consider that this was in the 1990s. So wild. wild. His first season with Ferrari was plagued with re- reliability problems, but he ended up finishing in third. In 1997, however, he was disqualified from the entire Drivers' Championship for pulling an unsafe move on Villeneuve during the last race. The two of them were That's fighting crazy. for the championship. Yeah, so he definitely had some very, very spicy rivalries. This is kind of why I say about drivers like him or Max or Lewis, they just have that kind of instinct to fight at the top, which sometimes comes with um, the territory. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It comes with the territory. Then the glory days really started in 2000. Schumacher won the driver's championship five years in a row, breaking the record at the time of five driver's championships. Then came 2005 and 2006. And guess who won that year (laughs) none other than fernando alonso himself if that puts the longevity of alonso (laughs) at all 2005 and and 2006 that's wild that's like almost 20 years we were nine yep (laughs) yeah so we were nine when alonso won that's when i was living in europe people were obsessed with with him so funny Then Schumacher and Ferrari's performance started to decline in those later years, and Schumacher announced his retirement in 2006. So actually, in 2010 to 2012, though, he came out of retirement, returned with Mercedes. He had been an advisor to Ferrari, among other things, Then he announced his return. And this was a new Mercedes team, the first time they were competing as a constructor since 1955. So yeah, he didn't finish very high in any of those years, and he was replaced by the one and only Lewis Hamilton for the 2013 season, which also just goes to show the longevity of Lewis's career. Um, (laughs) And um, for 2013, it was actually an incredibly tragic year for him. He was skiing with Mick in the Alps. He fell and he hit his head and had a life-threatening brain injury despite having wearing a having been wearing a helmet so he was put into a medically induced coma by the next year he was withdrawn from the coma but with paralysis and memory problems a bunch of other things they've come to this condition the whole family very very private all these years he hasn't been seen in public since and it was just such a shock when this happened I remember this so vividly my dad cried I think it was just a crazy situation because he had had this amazing career only to have this freak accident happen. Um, but it is a beautiful thing that the family has continued in F1 with Mick and and everything like that. Yeah, and it just like underscores how insensitive this magazine is. It just like, I cannot even. So yeah, talking I mean, about- In the Schumacher documentary on Netflix, which is really good, it 
they talked a little bit about his condition at the end and Mick said something along the lines of, I would give up everything just to be able to talk about racing with my dad. It was so so sad. sad. So sad. Yeah, that documentary is incredible for anyone who wants a deeper dive. Definitely, definitely watch that. So for his legacy, he, as we said, widely regarded as one of, if not the best driver of all time, though he definitely has a complicated reputation and legacy on the one hand, he was one of the most passionate, hungriest drivers ever who just put in kind of unprecedented work and effort to thrive and excel in the sport. But on the other hand, as we were saying, his driving style was sort of the like win at any cost mentality. And he definitely came under criticism for that. And for some of the racing choices he made over the years, people haven't considered him a great sportsman in that sense. Um, But one thing I think is important to talk about, and that's a little bit lost on us in modern day currently, is just F1 and the relationship it has had and does have currently with his home country, Germany, like motorsport has historically been hugely important to Germany as a nation. Like just think of all the iconic brands that make cars. Most of them are German, including Mercedes. They have a hugely rich history when it comes to Formula One as well. Like from 1994 to 2016, German drivers claimed 12 championships. Schumacher had seven, Vettel had four, Nico Rosberg had one. And now just to put that into context, there's only one German driver on the grid. There's no German GP. And for context, in 2010, there were seven German drivers. There used to be two German Grand Prix a year. Wow. So really interesting especially when we talk about Mercedes as a German brand like they obviously operate out of the UK they currently have two British drivers and Vettel has made comments about this in the past how it's kind of too expensive in Germany currently for kids to dream of being an F1 racer so it just begs the question of if Germany as a nation is going to do more to sort of build that pipeline for F1 drivers which historically has been so strong. Like Schumacher was basically synonymous with F1 and synonymous with Germany, but it just seems like F1 fandom seems to have waned a lot this past decade there. So I'm curious to see where it goes. We obviously have have Nico Hulkenberg, but it's, yeah, it's not the same as it once was. There's so much more to talk about with Schumacher, but definitely suggest looking up the highlights on YouTube, watching the Schumacher documentary. If you want to see some amazing live footage, it's really good great interviews with the families. Definitely recommend that. And on that note, we will sign off and catch you on the other side of this wild weekend for a Baku recap and definitely follow along with us on Instagram for whatever crazy things happen this weekend. (laughs) Have a great weekend, everyone. 